Hey, everybody. Good to see you guys. Yeah, great job. Awesome. It's good to see you guys. Uh, it is still me. I know I look like my like eight-year-old brother, but um, <laughs> for those of you who are new, I used to have a very manly beard that made me look probably wiser than I really am in reality. And uh, then before we tackled like the t- most difficult topic of all politics, I shaved it and came in looking like a little kid to now talk to you about this incredibly controversial issue. So um, how is that for a brilliant start? Um, I'm actually really excited to talk about this. Jesus He's in the last week of his life. We've been working through the gospel according to Mark. And, um, you know, we're seeing in the last week of his life the the many reasons that people decide to murder Jesus. And we're actually, tonight, we're going to see a really good reason they decide to murder Jesus. Again, not because we're like pro the murder of Jesus. You just see that he's saying things that that are pretty upsetting to the masses. Um, You know, it's funny. They say that at a party, you're not supposed to talk about two things, right? What are they? Religion. And politics. And Jesus is going to talk about both at the same time. And he's going to talk about them in such a way that nobody really talked about in history before. And really, everybody's going to leave Jesus with one of two uh, responses. Some people will leave amazed. That's what we see. And then other people leave more resolved than ever to kill him and to put him to death. And, and we, even in this room, are kind of confronted from the very beginning to say, okay, how are we going to think about this as he talks? He says some really hard things. And he really challenges a lot of our presuppositions about the way we should think about the world. Now, you should already feel the weight of the relevancy of what it is that Jesus is going to talk about, I mean, it is like political season, right? We're 169 days away from electing a new president. Isn't that hard to believe? 169 days away from electing a new president. And, you know, I was trying to think, somebody even asked me this past week, like, what's the political makeup of our church? And I don't know, there's a lot of diversity. I know some of you are conservative, some of you are liberal. Probably the majority of you are apathetic. Like, if that's just, like, would that, is that fair to describe the majority of you? A lot of you are just like, forget this, and I'm moving to Canada, and whatever, you know? Like, that's the majority of you in this room. And um, I feel like um, I don't know. It's just like, even if you are apathetic, you feel the weight of the relevancy of what it is that Jesus is going to talk about here. You know, it's just kind of unavoidable when it's election cycle season. You've got, you know, all the attack ads on TV. Uh, you know, a lot of you have cut the cord and you like just do Hulu and Netflix. And now all of a sudden political attack ads have like spread into those areas as well. You're like watching Hulu and you're like, man, what is a Trump ad doing when I'm trying to watch like Modern Family or something like that? Like how did that pop up there out of nowhere? Or like, you know, your social media feed, all of a sudden you've got Hillary like things going on in there and you've got people posting inflammatory comments and you're like unfriend, 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 you know, I mean, this is just like the season for that. And here's just kind of my general observation is not only are a lot of us confronted with this, um, but again, this is, this is a broad generalization. So it doesn't capture a lot of you, but or ca- capture all of you, but really the majority of the conversations I'm having are with people who are feeling the responsibility. Um, some of you for the first time in your lives, maybe for the first time in a, or for the first time in a long time to like engage or re-engage the political process. Um, a lot of you feel the responsibility in one way or another to kind of figure out what do I believe? Why do I believe it? This election in particular just seems more important. I have that conversation with people a lot where they're like, this just seems more important than all the prior ones. Even globally, I'm sensing that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was Skyping with a pastor in London that we're partnering alongside with. And one of his first questions to me was like, what do you think about Donald Trump? Um, you know, like Andy was in Guatemala City with a church that we were helping start um, three weeks ago, something like that. And he said, everybody was asking him like, well, what do you think about Trump? What do you think about Clinton? What do you 
you think about the election? Um, so it's interesting, not just at home, but abroad as well. It seems like everybody's kind of feeling that responsibility to figure out, like, what exactly is it that I think about this? And so it's actually really good news that Jesus talks about this. You know, for me, I'm not like Mr. Politics, so I'm not like, man, I would just pick this. But this is why we teach three books of the Bible, because Jesus addresses the whole kind of breadth of the human experience. And it's really an opportune time for him to speak into our lives as we try to figure out, like, what do I believe and why do I believe it about all of this? Now, let me say this as we get ready to dive into the text. Um, I don't know. People, People, like, make careers out of this. People have entire, like, TV networks based off of this topic. People get PhDs in this. And I think we got about 30 more minutes, okay? Um, so all that's to say, like, I'm not going to try to say everything about everything. No, nobody wants that whatsoever. In fact, all I'm going to do is I'm going to restrain myself to talk exclusively about what Jesus talks about. Jesus is really good about talking about the essential things that we as followers of Jesus need to know. Or if you're exploring Christianity, we're really glad you're here. But what you're going to see is really what is a better way than many of the political philosophies that are projected upon you. Really, Jesus is going to uh, present to you an entirely new way to see and understand the world. And I think you should really receive and see this as good news as well. So we're going to reduce ourselves to the essentials. There's a lot of things we could talk about. But Jesus is going to basically give three simple essentials for how we who want to follow him should think about the political process. That sound good? All right. USA, USA. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do it. Oh, boy. That was bad. Okay. Um, that's the opposite of what I'm going to do. All right. First, here's what we're going to do. Jesus reveals his squareness. Jesus reveals his squareness. Okay. Now, if you're thinking critically, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Well, um, I want you to think about a small child. For me, I have a daughter. I think she's exceptionally gifted, talented, intelligent. I think it's the truth. I don't think I'm biased about that whatsoever. Uh, but my daughter, she has this like toy that it seems like every child everywhere in the world has to have where it's like, you know, she has blocks that have certain shapes. And then she has like this container with holes in it that have corresponding shapes. And you you have to put the corresponding block into its corresponding hole and put it through. But a lot of times she doesn't really get the point of it. And so she will take like a square peg and literally try to like bash it into a round hole. So, you know, this is where the saying, like you can't put a square peg into a round hole, but she will literally be like, bang, 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 bang. And then she'll kind of like take a breather and grunt a little bit and evaluate. And then she'll just be like, bang, 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 bang. And like start all over again with that. Now, what what we're going to see here on the front end is this is what we try to do with Jesus. Jesus is the perpetual square peg who doesn't fit into the round holes of man-made systems. Jesus never perfectly fits into the agenda that has been invented by man because he came not to be reduced to some sort of um, endorsement for a political party or in sort of any sort of man-made agenda, but instead he came to establish the kingdom of God because he is God. And a lot of times he is reduced to that, but here's what he's come to do is not to have us use him, but to have us bow our knee to him so that he can bless us and use us in the way we so desperately desire. He perpetually, for any of you who have an agenda that you're trying to fit Jesus into, he perpetually frustrates because he has not come to take up your agenda. He has come to call you to take up his. Now, you're like, where do you see this? Well, look at verse 13, how this whole scene starts. It's really clever, the way that Mark crafts the story. And they, and they, this is talking about um, the people, the religious leaders that Jesus had been uh, having an argument with back and forth. These people were trying to find really justifiable reason to kill Jesus. They sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, 
for a lot of us in this culture, we're like, what in the world does that mean? Or why is that that big of a deal? But Mark is sort of tipping us off to the fact that the widest range, the most diverse group, the people that couldn't agree about anything, have come together for the sake of confronting Jesus. You've got these guys, the Pharisees, who are socially conservative, but they're politically progressive. Okay, They're socially conservative in the sense that they believe kind of a higher standard of morality should be imposed upon all people. But politically, they desire to overthrow the established Roman government because of its debaucherous practices. You've got people called the Herodians who are the exact opposite. They're socially progressive. You know, they're celebrating all the crazy sexual things that the Romans advocated for and all that sort of stuff. But they are politically conservative in the sense that they desire to uphold the existing government as well. So essentially what Mark is tipping you off to is the fact that all four corners of the moral and political landscape that, that exists within society are here in front of Jesus. They can't agree, agree about anything other than the fact that they really are frustrated with Jesus. And that's why they've come together. They're really frustrated with Jesus because he won't fit perfectly into their already pre-established man-made agendas. Now, you're like, how exactly does that matter in all of this? Well, there's a couple things that we just need to take away from this, and then we'll just move on to what it is that Jesus actually says. The first thing that we need to see is really we're being cautioned here to hijack Jesus for our agendas. Okay, we're being cautioned here to hijack Jesus for our agendas. The reality is, is that people love to do this. You see this right in the election season. You will see two different political parties at opposite ends of the political spectrum hold national conventions where they will not so subtly say, if the Jesus Christ were alive and he was walking around today, he would no doubt be voting for our particular candidate. And we do this with all sorts of other things as well. Again, a lot of you are politically apathetic, so you're like, I don't do this. But here's the thing is if your primary allegiance is to any sort of man-made cause, any any sort of man-made country, any sort of man-made political party, anything that is man-made, you will have the propensity to do this, to be silent on the places or to ignore the places where Jesus disagrees with what it is that you're advocating for and to just sort of puff up the parts where Jesus sort of aligns with your already predetermined agenda. So you have to be really, really careful about this, okay? All of us in this room have to ask ourselves, where does our primary allegiance lie? Is it, come, is it to the kingdom of America? Is it to the kingdom of the Republican Party? Is it to the kingdom of the Democratic Party? Is it to the kingdom of whatever particular cause we're really passionate about? Or will we see Jesus for who he really is and will we bow our knee to him as he so rightfully deserves? And will we surrender ourselves unilaterally to the kingdom of God that he has come to establish? So we have to be really careful. We want to hijack him and use him, and he won't be used because he's God. Now, first, we just not only see that, uh, the caution against the hijacking, but second, we're also seeing something about the priority of Jesus, okay? We're seeing something about the priority of Jesus. Here's what I mean about this. It's interesting because I think a lot of maybe the confusion in culture, and even as you see here in this opening scene about Jesus and exactly what does he think politically and things like that, stems from the fact that he doesn't talk a lot about this. And he's not like, I don't want to make it seem like he's unclear because he's like the most brilliant man who ever lived, right? He's just nuanced. He's like very careful in what he says and it requires a ton of thought and a ton of interpretation. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. is because Jesus cares way more about your relationship with God than he does about your relationship with the state. 
Now, he's not saying the relation with the state is unimportant or insignificant. We're going to talk about that. But he's saying the first and most significant thing is your relationship with God. Now, how do we see this in culture? Well, it's interesting. As the kind of the political cycle props up, you will have people projecting Jesus being like, if you were here today, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt he would be voting this particular way. But here's what's really interesting. In the political conversation about like, all the things that Jesus believes, everybody is silent about the things that like, he was tremendously clear about. Right? We were like sort of... We magnify these things that are a little bit unclear and very nuanced and require a ton of interpretation, like who he would vote for. And we're totally silent about the things that he just repeats and is unbelievably clear about again and again and again and again. It's amazing. The same voices that are like, oh, we know beyond a shadow of doubt Jesus would vote this way are like, well, and we also don't really know about this heaven and hell thing. And like, are we sinful? Are we not? Man, just make your own way. It's not that big of a deal. And Jesus is like, I'm crazy clear about that, right? Like, I'm crazy clear. I talk about that like 75 times again and again and again and again. Uh, I'm good. You're not. You're broken. Receive me. I've died for you. I'm going to reconcile you back to God. I've resurrected in your place. It's all about the priority of Jesus. He cares way, way, way more about the way you relate to God. And he's been very clear about that again and again and again than he does maybe the particular way that you vote. Again, it's not insignificant. It's just not of most significance. Make sense? Okay. So we see him reveal his squareness so that like everybody's mad at Jesus. Okay. And if you try to fit Jesus into your predetermined man-made agenda, you will always be mad at Jesus as well. So don't do that. Surrender yourself to the kingdom of God. Now, secondly, here's where Jesus starts to talk about kind of what it is that he believes politically. And what he does in this scene is he simultaneously, he undermines and affirms the system. He simultaneously undermines and then affirms the system. Now, we'll see how this happens. Look at verse 14. And they, so all the people that have been laid out, this really unlikely crowd comes to Jesus. And they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, all they're doing is buttering Jesus up here in the scene, right? Mark's already told us, that they're coming to Jesus to trap him. And so, you know, these are Jesus' opponents. They're enemies. But just in the same way that a broken clock is right twice a day, these guys are right about two things, right? Jesus is not swayed by people's appearances. Uh, Actually, in the Greek, it literally says, you're not a man who looks at people's faces. It's true. It's not like Jesus judges the the heart. That's what he really cares about rather than like external appearance. And secondly, you teach the ways of God, which is what he does as well because he is God. Now, look at what happens next. They come with the question that they think is going to nail Jesus and is going to lead to him saying something that gives justifiable reason to murder him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, you have to understand what's happening in this moment um, it's like, I don't know if any of you watch political TV or not, but, you know, there's always these talk shows where there's sort of in, these inflammatory hosts that do gotcha journalism where they bring somebody on and they ask them a crazy complex question and they give them like five seconds to answer it, right? You ever watch this? So like Nancy Grace, I uh, just feel like is the best at doing this. She's got like terrible Southern accent. She's like, all right, what do you think about illegal immigration? Give me an answer right now. We're going to commercial in five seconds. Answer it for me right now. And like anybody who's intelligent is like, well, that's like a, a very complex question. But, you know, she's trying to get somebody to say something that sort of blows up Twitter. That's basically what's happening here is gotcha journalism with Jesus where they're trying to get him to say something that blows up the social media of the day, um, which was word of mouth, which would lead to people saying, we got to kill this guy. You're like, well, why is that a particularly big deal? Because it's the nature of the question that they're asking him. They're asking him about a tax and not just taxes in general, but a particular tax. It was a head tax. It was a tax 
that was uh, established by the Roman government over the Jewish people that they reigned and ruled over. And basically, it, was, it wasn't a huge tax. It was just a single denarius, which was a day's wages. It wasn't a huge tax, but it was more of what the tax communicated that upset people so much. Because it was a tax the Jewish people paid basically to communicate their joyful acceptance of participating underneath Roman rule, which you would not be pumped about paying that tax. In fact, it was so controversial that just a few decades prior to this scene we're seeing right here, an entire revolt that took place in response to this tax where people saying you shouldn't pay this tax, and it doesn't, you know... And they even went into the temple and cleansed the temple in protest of this tax. So Jesus has kind of done some similar things, and you can see why they're asking him, like, what exactly is it that you think about this tax? Now, the reason this has the chance of blowing up so significantly is because of his audience, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been asked something controversial. It's hard to be asked something controversial, but imagine being asked something controversial amongst a group of people who you know are polar opposites of the answer to that question. Right? Can you imagine what that would be like? So basically, Jesus, if he says, yes, pay the tax, the Jewish leaders are like, see, he's not who he says he is. He, he, he upholds, he celebrates this Roman debaucherous government that is imposing themselves upon the people of God. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, well, you've got the people who are loyal to the government saying, this guy's a revolutionary. He's going to overthrow the entire government. We've got to kill this guy before things get really, really out of hand. And so they think they've sort of painted Jesus into a corner because... They've, like, gone on Nancy Grace on him. Now, Jesus is God, so he doesn't get, like, flustered, right? Um, you know, for me, I'd be like, oh, crap. Um, I don't know. Like, can I call a friend or, like, what exactly, what exactly are we doing here? <laughs> you know, I just, like, run in the opposite direction. But Jesus is God, and he's, like, infinitely wise. And so he says this response that's unbelievably brilliant. It leaves everybody amazed, and it's just it's stunning. So he says this, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Now, let me show you what a denarius would have looked like. Uh, here's a picture of it. You can go to museums and see this. So this is the thing that they would have put in Jesus' hand. Uh, the picture is of a guy named Tiberius Caesar, who was uh, the ruler of the day. If you see, there's writing along the outside of the coin, just in the way that we have, you know, in God we trust or something like that, outside the, uh, our currency as well. The inscription would have said, Tiberius Caesar, king, son of God, high priest. Okay, that's what it would have said, uh, which is why he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say Caesar's. That's why, because that's what they were looking at right there. Now, look at the way Jesus responds in verse 17. Here is the brilliant thing that simultaneously undermines and elevates the political system. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, there's a fairly famous statement. Probably a lot of you in this room, even if you haven't been in church in your entire life, have heard something about this before um, because it's just a, a catchy saying uh, and it's kind of trickled its way into all of culture as a whole. But what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's simultaneously undermining and elevating the system. Let's talk about each of these. Now, he starts by undermining the system. And he, and he undermines the system, not just for them, but for any of us in this room who view the political system as salvific in nature. Okay, he's undermining the political system for any of you in this room who view it as salvific in nature. Now, this probably isn't the majority of you. Most of you are skeptical and cynical. Um, there's probably a few of you who think this way. Just we have enough diversity in the life of our church to think this. Now, you're like, well, how exactly does this, he do this? Well, it's in the fact that in this in this line, he creates a distinction between who God is and who the leader is. Now, if you understand, in the first century, that was incomprehensible. Like, to be a leader was to be God. In fact, on their own currency, that's why I kind of showed you the coin. I wasn't just trying to nerd out on you. Like, even on their own currency, they're printing, like, this guy's the son of God. There, there was no sort of category for, like, divinity and government leadership of not being one and the same. 
In fact, I read something this past week that said this is the first moment in history where we have a recorded example of limited government being advocated for. So you're welcome, Americans. Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, like when he says this and he comes and says like, okay, you have some responsibilities to Caesar, but your ultimate responsibility is to God. And he's creating a distinction. He's saying like, by the way, the leader isn't God. Now, the majority in this room are like, that's not really a big deal, right? Because you're not like the person who's like, man, you know what I really wrestle with? Like, if the next president, will I really worship and obey him as God or not, or her as God or not, right? For most of you in this room, you're like, man, we know that politicians are idiots. Like, we, like, we don't have to worry with that. We don't struggle with that. Like, that's not, that's not, now, now again, like, don't be a chronological snob, okay? Don't be like, they're idiots, and we're smart, and we don't do this. One, you just need to see, you know, the democratic system reflects the fact that the majority of people, I think a lot of times, particularly, like, watch a national convention on TV and see the messianic expectations and the language, the messianic language that is placed upon a particular candidate and see the degree to which people wouldn't say, oh, that's God, but they have the expectations of God on that man or woman. It isn't interesting, like, nobody at a national convention is holding up signs that's like, my candidate has the best economic policy, right? Like, you don't see that, right? It's not policy. It's like hope, prosperity. Like, this is the man that is finally going to come and make the world the way that it was meant to be and to heal the brokenness of the previously incompetent regime. Every single national convention in the history of America has pretty much been like that. But here's the thing. is like, in particular, here, here's where, like, this is not scriptural at all. This is just... Like, I love history, and I love sort of studying trends, and so you take this or leave this, and I might be completely wrong. But it seems to me that we as a culture are moving in a direction where we are growing increasingly ripe for a man or woman to carry these sorts of weights and expectations from us. Historically speaking, when people are pessimistic about the future and when people are scared about the future, they will really attach themselves to almost anyone who is charismatic. And I'm not even talking so much about this like, particular election because I've listened to a lot of podcasts on various ends of the political spectrum. And it seems like everybody, I don't know how this happened, but like, everybody's kind of disappointed with like, the options that are presented, it seems like. So I'm not saying now, I'm just saying like, I want you to remember this moment right now and to look 5, 10, 15 years into the future and to see that when people get desperate, they get a little bit crazy and they love to attach the expectations of God on people who are less than God. And anytime anyone other than God plays God in your life or in the life of a nation, things get really, really bad. Okay? So, like, let's not just be like, oh, yeah, we're so much smarter than those people back then. We do the exact same thing, and we in this room have the propensity to do the exact same thing as well. Now, he undermines the system in that way, to say it's not salvific in nature, and don't go towards it for, for achieving some sort of sense of salvation. But at the same time, he, uh, he kind of affirms, he elevates the importance of the system as well. And this is for those of us who don't see the political spectrum as salvific in nature, but this is probably the majority in this room who are either apathetic or anarchistic in your posture towards the system. Okay? Now, we see this in the fact that he says, give something to Caesar. Now, it's interesting not only what he says, but what he doesn't say, because, I don't know, I think a lot of us, 
from our political philosophy, been like, man, well, Jesus should have taken the coin and thrown it on the ground and kicked dirt on it and been like, man, you heathens, this whole thing's messed up. You guys are stupid. You shouldn't think this way whatsoever. Um, you know, and actually that was a fairly popular view of the day. You had guys like the Essenes uh, who basically were so kind of disillusioned with the entirety of the political system of the day. They literally just moved out of the desert because they were like, forget this. I'm not dealing with it anymore, which is like basically like, how many of you have said when you saw the political options presented to you, the candidate options presented to you, like, forget this, I'm leaving the USA and I'm moving to Canada. Like, th- these are basically the Essenes. Like, you would be a Essene if that's what you think today. And some of you also in the room are like, you're a little bit crazy. And a few of you are like, we're going to start a revolt. We're going to start a revolution. I'm forming a militia. I'm going to move into the middle of nowhere out in Wyoming. And we're going to take back this country for ourselves. Now, the, if that were you back in the first century, you wouldn't have been a scene. You would have been a zealot. That's where we get the word zealot from. It was a group of people, and they loved anarchy, and they loved revolution. And Jesus, he calls us away from apathy, and he calls us away from anarchy. And he calls us to stretch ourselves to engage whatever system we have sort of willed and I know voluntarily is like a strong word, but it's a system that we participate in. That's what's happening in this moment where he's asking these leaders, like, hey, give me a coin. Because he's saying, like, hey, you participate in the currency. This is the system you've opted into. Now stretch yourself to participate in this and to seek its flourishing and its good as well. And this is a continual theme you see throughout the New Testament where Christians are called, for example, by Paul in Romans 13 to be subject to the governing authorities in 1 Timothy 2. He calls us to pray for those who are in leadership. 1 Peter 2, he calls us to be subject to authorities, which is a hard saying, right? Like, these people are killing Christians, and he's saying, pray for them. Stretch yourselves to obey them. He doesn't, it's not blind followership. He's not, like, advocating fascism and, like, oh, don't worry about it whatsoever. I mean, you see moments in the New Testament of sort of peaceful disobedience and revolt against the government when the government oversteps its bounds and calls them to do something immoral. You see this in Acts 4, for example, where they call them to stop sharing the gospel. And they're like, I'm sorry, what you're saying runs directly opposed to what God says. And we're going to obey God rather than you. But you see followers of Jesus trying to live peaceably and to stretch to themselves to see the goodness of the kingdom of God spill into every nook and cranny of the public sphere. Now, the logical question is, what the heck does that look like? Right? Like, what does that look And I'll tell you, in all of this, this is the thing that kind of convicts me the most. Because for me, um, I think I'm a product of this generation, and it's easy to just sort of like, I don't know. For me, I think our generation is apathetic. And for me, I've largely been apathetic about the entire political system. And this challenges me. It challenges me to engage, and it challenges me to think, and it challenges me to understand what I believe and why I believe it. And again, I don't want to make it seem like, like, all of a sudden, we're going to have 4th of July Sundays, and there's going to be American flags behind us, and I'm going to come in wearing, like, a bald eagle, like, button-up or something like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, okay? Like, like, that's why I said USA, USA. I was, like, joking about that, right? Like, I would, we would never be that type of church because our fundamental allegiance and our unilateral allegiance is to the kingdom of God rather than any sort of kingdom of man. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, here, here's where I really got convicted of this, right? It's, like, for me, I think I thought, like, okay, there's this whole political world, and I just won't even think about it, and we'll keep it completely separate, and there's the whole sort of spiritual world over here, and I'm just going to be over here, and you guys do what you want to do, and we'll do what we want to do, and I don't really want to engage this whatsoever. And then I asked myself a really difficult but simple question. What part of humanity is not meant to come underneath the reign and rule of Jesus Christ? And what aspect of culture 
are we as Christians called to stop thinking Christianly about? And there's really nowhere. And how do we do that and not be weird and not multiply like all the crazy things the religious right did? And I mean, you've got the religious left as well. I mean, both ends of the political spectrum have done this really, really poorly. But I don't think the solution is just to check out. But instead, we stretch ourselves to engage the system as well as possible. And I know it's hard, and I know I'm copying out by being like, we have a time limitation, but that's what the excuse I'm going to give right now. I don't know. Like, if you're just asking, like, what does this look like in your life? I don't really know. But I'm, I'm like, trying to surrender this part of my life that wasn't aligned with Jesus with Jesus to think well and be obedient here. Okay. Third, Jesus ignites a true and better revolution. Okay? Jesus ignites a true and better revolution. Now you say, where exactly does this pop itself up? Well, you see this in the fact that he closes it, not just by saying, like, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. Now, that is a really rich statement because what pops out of that are three really astounding truths. Um, I don't know, like, for me, again, just being vulnerable here, I had seen this story a thousand times, but I'd just kind of been like, man, this is a story about paying taxes. All right, next. Um, you know, but it's like, he's saying something really powerful when he talks about giving to God the things that are God's. Now, the first thing that Jesus is doing as he makes these truths, the first thing he's doing is he's making a claim. He's making a claim that just in the same way that the government has certain rights over the currency that it distributes, the God who formed us in his own image and if you remember this passage, like earlier in it, he says about the coin, whose likeness and image is this? That language is really, really specific there. Like images, for any of you who know the Old Testament, images of Genesis 1 should be resounding in your mind where it declares that humanity has been created in the image of God. And the point that Jesus is making here is just as government has limited rights over the currency it distributes, particularly in this culture in the first century, the currency was distributed from the wealth of the emperor. He's like, yeah, he has some rights over this. God has all rights over us because he has made us and we owe the very nature of our existence to him. I don't care how gifted you are, talented you are, how good you are at skiing, whatever it might be, you did not will yourself into existence, right? You weren't like, okay, well, I decide to exist today. Boom, I'm born, right? It was a gift, like, it was a gift that you received, and you were formed by God. And as a consequence, then, God has certain rights over the way that we live our lives, that the entirety of our lives would be given as a tribute and an honor to him. Now, the second truth that he comes with is not just making a claim, but raising a problem. Because, you know, for any of us who think critically about this whatsoever, we'd be like, well, oh, crap, none of us have done that. Right? I used to read this and be like, oh, give to God the things that are God's. Check. Like, wait a second. Like, there's some really bad news when Jesus says this, right? It's kind of like, you know, I know for some of you, you're exploring Christianity, which is awesome. We love having you here. And, like, basically what you're finding out right now is, like, it's almost like being, like, 40 years old and all of a sudden figuring out that you're supposed to be paying taxes your entire life, right? Can you imagine that? Being, like, you've been paying taxes, right? And you're, like, what's taxes? And it's, like, it's, like, man, you've been living in this entire system and taking from this entire system that gives you all this stuff and you haven't been given back. And the government isn't, like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's not that big of a deal. It's, like, you owe $250,000 in back taxes. You'd be, like, that is really, really bad news. It's kind of the scene that you're seeing here. It's, like, you owe God a debt because you have not lived your entire life to give him what it is that he deserves. It's actually far worse news than you owing an incomprehensible sum of money to the government. You owe your very life to God, which is why the penalty for sin is death itself. 
Now, a third truth emerges, where Jesus then ignites a better revolution in the fact that Jesus is going to say, hey, this debt that you deserve to pay, I'm going to take it upon myself, and I will die so that you might live. Now, this is what makes Jesus far better than any sort of other king or political leader or candidate who's out there because nobody in power treats us this way, right? I mean, again, you know what's really funny? I was thinking about this. Like, our church was growing up because I feel like I've heard several stories in the life of our church of people being hounded by the IRS. Um, you know, like, some of you didn't do TurboTax right or something like that. And you're like, man, how could I mess up TurboTax? And you did. And now, all of a sudden, you're being, like, audited. And you're like, I'm 25. I can't be audited. And they're like, we're going to audit you, bro. Like, we're coming after you. And it's terrible, right? Like, they're coming after you. And it's terrible. And for any of you who've experienced this, like, you get a letter in the mail telling you you're being audited. You get an amount of money that you're meant to pay back. But you don't have the IRS be like, and don't worry about it. We're going to pay for it and make up because, you know, we love you so very much, right? Like, if you got that letter, you'd be like, this is a scam. What is going on? Like, there's just no way you would believe that. But Jesus, this is why he's better. He's better than the government. He's better than a king. He's better than a system. He's God. He's like the God who says to you, hey, here's the claim over you. And here's the debt that you owe. And this is really, really terrible. And just in the moment we begin to comprehend it, we begin to despair. He's like, well, wait a second. The debt that you owe of your very life to God I'm going to the cross to pay it so that you don't have to die, but instead can live. That's what's happening in this moment. And he's declaring, like, he is the God who loves us and incarnates into our world and pursues us and lives for us and dies for us and resurrects for us. And he reveals himself to be the greatest leader the world has ever known. And this, as a consequence, and as we think about, like, well, how do we engage the system and how has the world really changed? Well, this is the key to how the world has historically always been changed. It's that Jesus broke into the world. He doesn't come to change the world from the outside in the way that the political systems try to do, but instead from the inside out, right? From the outside in, we can only do so much. You can only legislate so much morality. You can only show so many documentaries that make people feel terrible about themselves. You know, eventually they just start eating the same crap that's terrible for the world, right? But man, like when Jesus Christ, he comes and he lives and he dies and he resurrects and he gives his spirit and his spirit comes and lives inside us. It changes us from the inside out and it transforms us into the type of men and women who actually have the capacity to change the world. Because we have not only the power of the gospel inside of us, but we have the power of the gospel that we can deliver to change entire other people as well. Historically, this has been what's happened. It's like... And you go into 1700s Great Britain, for example. The slave trade is super crazy prevalent. And this guy named William Wilberforce is so transformed by the goodness of God towards him. He starts seeing the, the, the evils of the, of the slave trade in a brand new way. And he's like, this is not the way that God treats his people. And as a consequence, I'm going to put an end to this thing. And for 11 straight years, he's like gathering petitions. He gathered petitions from a tenth of the population of England. Because he was so moved by this. And he went to the House of Commons again and again and again for 11 straight years. And they said, no, 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 no. And so the 11th time, they're like, we give up. Fine. It's over. It's done. Man, you look at another part of the world in the 1700s. A guy named William Carey, he's the first Christian missionary to India. And he goes in there. I know it's hailing. Stick with me, okay? It's not a big deal. It's Denver. I know it rains. We freak out. It's fine, okay? This is more important. Okay, William Carey. He's the first Christian missionary to India. 
And he goes there and he comes and he finds incredible societal evils when he arrives there. Do you know that? Like because of the Hinduistic karma-driven culture that existed within there, these incredibly destructive behaviors existed. For example, it was really normal for mothers to kill their babies because they believed that was what the Hindu gods desired for them so they could end up in a better place in the next life. It was, it was culturally permissible that when a husband would die, the wife would be killed as well because why should she go on living if the husband dies? Ladies, you're like, we got to change that, right? Right? Like, I, I heard somebody see, say this. Um, Carrie, here's an article talking about this. It said, um, Carrie and fellow, mis- fellow missionary were riding in Malta, India in 1794 when they saw a basket hung in a tree in which an infant had been exposed. The skull remained, the rest having been devoured by ants. This holy act of infanticide had been committed with religious fervor by a Hindu mother. Infanticide was not uncommon in India in Carrie's day, but the British government, as well as the government of India, ignored such sacrifice of infants. It didn't want to interfere in religious matters of the people. And here was this guy, like, so moved by the salvation of these people to come and to correct their understanding of God. Like, God is not some cruel, distant dictator who demands the, the, the sacrifice of our children so he might appease him. No, God is a God of love who expresses his love tangibly in the fact that he actually sacrifices his son for us so that we might live. He totally reverses the way that they think about who God is, and it transforms the entire culture where now those things aren't okay, and even this... This country that's not predominantly Christian at least attests the reason these transformations happen at a political scale to guys like Kerry and other Christian missionaries who basically helped undo all of this. And even so you can bring it in today, we have a girl in our church. She comes in the morning. She grew up as a missionary in a part of the world called Papua New Guinea. Now, I don't know if any of you have been to Papua New Guinea, but if you go there, women are treated like possessions, basically. There's something less than human. And so it's, it's permissible to abuse women. It's permissible to take advantage of women. It's permissible to basically say, like, you have to do what I tell you to do, um, whether you like it or not. And she said to me, she said this to me two years ago, and I finally remembered it this past week because I really wanted to share this. She said to me, it was just like an off-the-hand comment over dinner one time. She was like, yeah, you know the way we knew that the gospel had broken into a particular tribe? The clearest indicator of it was the way that the husbands treated their wives. She said, in every other part, every other part of the country, the men were abusive, and they took advantage of them, and they did, made the women do all the work. She said, but the gospel broke in when we saw the husbands acting like servants. Where do you think they got an idea like that? What do you think was powerful enough to un- undo an entire cultural system that feeds the deepest, most selfish, carnalistic desires of men and for men to walk away from that and say, no, we will not rule and reign and terrorize, but we will serve and love and help. The gospel changes people. People compose a culture. And as a consequence, the gospel is the hope for changing the world. And that's what our hope is in, in the midst of all of this. And so I would challenge you as we finish, one, just kind of like, where does your hope lie in all of this? I, I know, like, it's a weird thing to talk about, but it's because the kingdom of God isn't here yet. You're supposed to be perpetually frustrated. Suck it up. It's just the way until Jesus comes back. It's always going to be like this, okay? It, it, nobody, nobody is a king like Jesus, and you won't be content or satisfied. The restlessness in your heart is because Jesus alone is meant to play that role. 
And I would just challenge you to ask the question, who ultimately will be the king of your life? Will you devote your allegiance primarily to a political party? Will you devote your allegiance primarily towards cynicism about the political parties? Will you devote your allegiance primarily towards other, um, I don't know, like, like movements and causes that get around the political system or are trying to redeem the political system? Or will you finally bend your knee and worship Jesus as king and Lord as this passage is calling you to do? Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you for talking about something really hard like politics. I pray that we would bow our knees and um, surrender ourselves to you. We're thankful for what you've done in the world through your gospel. We thank you for the way that it's not just saved individuals, but even redeemed cultures. I think about the way that the world has been impacted for for, for just practical good through Christianity spilling in. Think about it in our own country, the, the, the evils that have existed in our own country, like slavery and segregation, things like that, that have been undone by Christian leaders who were on the forefront of this and were advocating for this is the, not the way that God has called us to treat people. And I pray that we, as we look to the future as well, we would take seriously the responsibility to really think Christianly about the entirety of life, even something as hard as politics. Not to find salvation in the system, but to really stretch ourselves to see the kingdom of God spread into every nook and cranny of the public sphere um, in our private lives as well. And we just ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.